Hey, Jerry Walker, class of 93. Here with the Left Coast Pirates. You guys doing a great job. We appreciate what y'all doing out there. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. I'm not even going to ask you today, Mikey. Come on, Tommy. Ask the question. I'm not asking you today, Mike. I don't want to know. I'm going to tell you anyway, Tommy. One of our rules is we do not podcast angry. Hence, we don't record a show directly after the game. But even after letting it sink in overnight, my emotions haven't really changed. This team coming into this week was being compared to other generational teams in Seton Hall history. They were being projected as a two-seed in the NCAA tournament. They were being talked about as a top 10 team that could win the national title. I was clearly in the majority of those who were impressed by their game against Marquette. I mean, let's not, you know, sugarcoat it. But maybe that was a little bit of fool's gold. You know, that Marquette team has now lost six of their last seven and is under 500 in Big East play. Let's put things into perspective a little bit further. This team was 10-1 and with a three-game lead in the standings and then went three and four. They needed only one of their last two to win the outright title, and they lost both. This team against the Power Five schools in the non-conference was two and four. This team was also two and four against the best teams in the conference, Creighton, Villanova, and Providence. At the end of the day, finishing in a three-way tie for the conference title and getting the three seed in the Big East tournament, it just feels like a huge disappointment. You know, there's something I learned growing up, and I feel like it totally applies to this situation. Tommy, it goes like this. A tie is like kissing your sister. And if you really want to put things into perspective, I don't care what the rules say. Creighton is the Big East champion in my eyes. They were clearly the better team than us. They beat us both times, and they deserve to celebrate on their home court with their fans after being predicted to finish seventh in the preseason polls. Well, thank God the world doesn't revolve around Mike Desiree's rules. We all know how much you love your rules, Mike. I know you love to pick players of the decade by taking years that are not in the decade into consideration. I know how you like to talk about potential seed lines by looking at future games. I know how you like to make up all your rules, Mike. But you know what? I'm going to listen to what a Big Five conference considers its champion. You know what? You're right. I absolutely hate the concept of co-champion, Mike. 
In these types of situations, the champ should be crowned based on what the Big East tournament seedings tiebreakers are. I mean, currently, like, look at it. Think about it. We nearly have one-third of the conference as its regular season champ. That's crazy. But you know what, Mikey? You don't get to cry about the rules after the game is played, Mike. The Big East Conference gets to tell me how they choose their conference champion. And just like your brother gets to tell you what channel the TV's set on, that's what matters, Mikey. So, is it a big disappointment? Oh, Mike, I am disappointed beyond belief. But that doesn't change the fact that those fans in Omaha rushed their court to get a third of the conference banner, Mike. What should have happened, Mike? Should the kids in Philadelphia rush an empty gymnasium and put up a third of the banner? Should the kids in South Orange rush the Walsh gymnasium and put up a third of the banner? Because that's the nonsense we got right now, but that's the nonsense we got to live with. I got two things in response to that. Number one, never give my brother props on this podcast. <laughs> never! He doesn't even know what college basketball is. Never mind even want to kind of get involved in the dialogue. Do not give him any props. I'm sorry. You keep bringing up your friends, your brother, your your neighbor's dog. I got to bring him up sometime. It's a family show. Um, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> not, not, not after we get angry at this podcast. Number two. Number two. Fine. Rules. Whatever. My emotions right now, and I get a lot of fans' emotions, do not care what the rules say. In this current state of mind, it feels like a disappointment. Come talk to me five years from now. We're looking back, and you're seeing the banner in the gym, and we're talking about the glory days. Sure, Big East champions, co-champions, whatever you want to call it, it'll be prideful because it's the first time it happened in 27 years and only the third time it's ever happened in program history. But today, the Sunday, right after it all fell apart for the second time in the week, I am not going to be resolved with saying it's okay. I'm just not. So just get into the podcast. Let's get it over with. Let me get all my emotions out and let's move on with my day. Well, I hope everyone's strapped in because this one might get ugly. This week on the podcast, we review the losses on senior night to Villanova and the loss to Creighton in Omaha. And we take a look at the road to 2494. But first, Villanova 79, Seton Hall 77. This one got emotional before the ball was even tipped. A record crowd of 16,863 filled the rock to celebrate this special senior class. And when Miles Powell lifted his encased jersey to the sky, there wasn't a dry eye in the building, including his own. After that, there was some basketball to be played. The first 20 minutes were tightly contested as neither team could get a greater lead than five points with no leading 33 to 30 at the break the Wildcats came out hot in the second half and hit five three-pointers to build a 14-point lead with 14 minutes to play but Seton Hall would chip away at the lead and Sandro's driving right-handed layup would cut the lead to three with 420 to go but Nova went on an immediate 7-0 run to push the lead back to 10 
Those who prematurely left for the exits missed a crazy finish as the Wildcats folded at the line, blowing 7 of 11 free throws. In the final 10 seconds, Miles Powell had a chance to tie the game, and Miles Kale had a late shot, but both attempts were off the mark. All right, the box score this one on Tommy Sandro, 20 points, 10 rebounds, 8 of 10 from the floor. He was just doing everything offensively that he wanted to do. McKnight, 16 points, 7 assists, and 6 rebounds. Miles Powell, 14 points, 8 assists, and another 4 boards. And it has to be mentioned, Shavar Reynolds, a career-high 12 points on 3 of 3 from distance. Nova on the other side of the coin had four starters in double figures, Samuel and Moore with 19 and Sadiq Bey with 20 points before fouling out late. On the team stats, both teams shot better than 40% from three. Nova uncharacteristically was 10 of 18 from the free throw line. The Hall had great ball control with only seven turnovers, but surprisingly only one block combined between both teams for the entire game. Now, Mike, as you mentioned last week, I was at that game. The crowd was going crazy. It was a great time to be there. But the game seemed a little disjointed. I'm actually quite surprised when we looked at the box score that we only had seven turnovers, that we shot so well. You would think with these kind of numbers, we would have done better overall. You know why it kind of felt disjointed at times? Because Jay Wright knew he went to use his timeouts. It just seemed like whenever the building was ready to just erupt back-to-back buckets, you know, the the crescendo of emotions was about to come exploding out of 17,000 fans. Jay called timeout twice in the second half and just kind of sucked the life out of the building. And then as you told me, it just seems like when we needed that one extra stop to put us over the top, Nova found a way to make a play. So I I don't know if that was just disjointed or just Nova playing good basketball and kind of keeping the crowd somewhat out of the excitement of the game. We've really taken the crowd to task this season about either not filling up the stands or not being uh, vociferous, if you will, during the games. But I'm going to say crowd was great, Mike. It was loud. It was into it. And like you mentioned, every time we tried to pick up the team's energy, and more importantly, it wasn't after a big three or after a big basket normally. It was when the crowd sensed a defensive stop was needed, man. It was like one of those old New York Giants crowds that used to get excited about defense. Every time we'd come up, and like you said, every time we got that gut punch because they came in and they made a play or what have you. So this is a pet peeve of mine, and you were there, so please describe it for me. You stay until the final buzzer, in my opinion. And, you know, if you're getting blown up by 20, I get it. But, you know, Nova had a little bit of a push there with a couple minutes to go. They extended the lead to eight. Yeah, it felt like the game was over and they had control. But, you know, miracles happen. You know, the, the crazy comeback against West Virginia on CBS that year with Azelle, those things happen. And it's special to be in the building when those kind of games unfold. You've been there. You've fought through the traffic. You're waiting through the lines. You've, you've waited for 38 minutes of a great game, and now you got to run to the exits? Yeah, shame on the swaths of fans that de- decided to leave at about the 130 mark or so when Nova went up eight. We, we were just there. Nova hits a big shot, and all of a sudden, all these fans from the bench side start just crawling out of the stands, and I'm just thinking to myself, 
You waited this long? You sat here through all this and now you're leaving? No, I wasn't leaving until that buzzer went off, until the team and the cheerleaders saluted the school with the alma mater. I, I was there, man. And you know what? Good for them that they almost missed that miracle comeback. I mean... It would, t and honestly, I get it. It would have taken a miracle at 1.30 to make up those eight points. But Mother Seton almost answered all those prayers, man. And you know what? Those fans that left, they weren't getting out of those tight streets in Newark any faster if they hung around for those last few minutes. Well, we talked about this the entire season leading up and throughout. How is the casual fan going to react? Are they going to fill the building? Are they going to get loud? I mean, maybe I'm going to get myself in trouble here. That's what happens with the casual fan. The casual fan heads to the exit to beat the traffic early. It's just, I, I know the diehards are probably listening. I want everyone to listen to Left Coast Pirates, but you know what? You're going to take some criticism if you leave the building early in that kind of atmosphere. Okay, so now I've experienced a weeknight late start game at The Rock. So now I'm going to bust some myths that are out there, but maybe, or, or maybe say, hey, I can understand now. So they didn't open the doors until about 7.30 and there were just lines of people waiting to get in. And, and we snuck into a, a smaller line that I won't give out the secret to, but we got in relatively quickly as compared to some of the fans. On the way out... I understand now why people complain about late starts in Newark. It's not the amount of parking. There's ample parking. There's ample public transportation. But if you do drive to the rock, you pile out into these side streets that get cramped up with, uh, with traffic. I get it. It's going to slow you down. But once we got out of that traffic, it took us 15 minutes to get back to camp. And we took the side streets, man. We went up, we shot up South Orange Avenue. And we got from the Rock to campus in about 15 minutes. It was an easy ride. You know what? You're always telling me to stay on track with this podcast. And now we're logistically breaking down the travel options of, of Newark's uh, traffic lights you and, wanted and me arteries. To, you wanted to tell, have me explain what my experience was, and that's the experience. I get it I, now. I wanted the basketball experience, not the, oh, I got home 45 minutes later All right. Well, you know what? You want the basketball experience, Mike? Nova and Jay Wright are still the conference's gold standards. Absolutely. And this was not considered his best roster coming into this season and still top 15 in the country, 13th in the net coming into that game, tied for the Big East conference title now after they beat Georgetown at 13 and five. And they're probably going to get another two or three seed in the NCAA tournament. Must be nice to be having a rebuilding year when you're basically still the cream of the crop. Well, hey, Commissioner Wright knows what he's doing on that side of the floor, Mike. He works the refs. That second half, the foul differential was crazy. We're sitting up there in the crowd looking up at the scoreboard going, really? One foul this late into the second half? Really? Oh, man, but I'll tell you, this team's got its problems. They rode their starters I mean, they all had 35-plus minutes. Not a single point came from the bench. And I know if that was a Seton Hall box score, we'd be all over it talking about, hey, we need some contributions from that bench. And when Sadiq Bey goes pro, because let me tell you something, 
That dude is full man. He's going pro. There's no way he's coming back next year. There's no point in it. That team reloads. There's a difference. We don't have to talk about the development of a freshman to sophomore, or maybe Miles Kale becomes the Batman. This team reloads. They got another monster recruiting class coming in. And to be honest, I don't care what they did to uh, allocate the minutes. They won the game. You can complain all you want about not getting bench production when you lose. If, if he's going to win another national championship or get to a final four and he rides these guys for 35 minutes, good for them. He knows that that's their formula to win. We're going to talk about it later in our podcast that right now we've done the same exact thing with our bench and we're not winning. So he doesn't get a criticism for that. If you ask me, you know what? He also understood how to manage the game within the game. When Gil went out, he was able to post up every mismatch on the court. I mean, I'm going to pick on Shavar Reynolds. I thought Shavar played a really good game and he was aggressive with defense, but there were a couple sequences where they were kind of like showing Bay isolated on Reynolds and he kind of backed him down, got to the free throw line and elevated and he hit a couple jump shots. Once again, I keep on saying this like a broken record, no knock on Reynolds, but there's a five, six inch height differential there. Whenever there, that opportunity presented itself, Jay Wright was all over it. They played inside out without a big guy. No, How more about than, that? More than just a height differential, there was a severe weight differential. I mean, Sadiq Bay is big. I mean, man is put together. And when he was posted on Shavar, I mean, Shavar had nothing to do. He had nothing to give him. I mean, I'm not saying that anyone had their way with Sadiq because Kale did as well as he could with Sadiq. I know Miles got co Miles covered him for a little bit, but no one was stopping him. But it was not a good idea throwing Shavar on Bay. Yeah, but Gillespie was posted up McKnight. Samuels was posted up. They had good interior passing. Uh, they they had uh, Robinson Earl pump faking from three. Guys jumping at him and him attacking the basket. Everything they did was just fundamentally sound. It was smart basketball. They all stay within his system. It, it's, it's fun to watch, and it's annoying to compare their crisp basketball next to the mishmash that we throw out offensively. You know, we did, there are some things that we could talk about in a positive light with Seton Hall. Let's not make this sound like we're a wildcat sure podcast. So let's go into it. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So on senior night, the junior stepped up. Sandro had another monster game and we needed a spark. And he picked it up where he ended the week previously. And I know Tommy didn't have as good of a game in the in the Creighton outing, but in this Nova game, you can debate me all you want. We can we can pick on the the uh, overhyped praise before he even got to Seton Hall, but he played like an NBA pro. Oh, stop that! Stop that, Mike! Let me stop comparing! Stop comparing! Stop that! You're such a prisoner of the moment because we're gonna look at the Creighton game and ask what happened to him. Stop that! In the moment of oh, that game, Mike, Mike, he was me, man. he was Seton Hall's best player and arguably the he best was absolutely on the floor. their best player on the floor. But I'll tell you what, again, I was shocked at seeing the box score after the game. Mamu really played well, and re I mean, monsterly played well in stretches. And then there were stretches of the game where you didn't see him. Right. So but however, however, those stretches that he really contributed, he really contributed, man. 
so why don't we get him the ball? He had 10 shots. He's eight for 10, three of three from distance. He's dominating the game. And you don't get him more than 10 you, shots? You know why we didn't get him the ball? Because Shavar was hitting his shot that night, baby. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hey, we have been as critical as could be with Shavar. And you know what, Mike? A couple podcasts ago, you mentioned that you have to have Shavar hit that shot when he's open. Or, or take the shot in the least. Forget about hitting the shot. You got to keep the defense up, playing even. And what did he do? He was getting that corner three and nailing it, and good for him. And that last one, I'm telling you a little bit, everybody should have Shavar Reynolds Jr.'s confidence level because after he hit that third one, he kind of turned to the crowd. He shook his shoulders a little bit, did a little shimmy. Everybody loved it. I was up screaming. It was great. If they're going to double-team Miles Powell and he's going to make that pass, I don't care who the open guy is. You have to shoot the ball with confidence. There was a couple games where Shavar was hesitant, pump-faking, letting the D close out on him, and he was just ripping it. He was just pulling the trigger. They were big shots. They got him back in the game. But I'm still going to say this, and this we're going to talk about it in the, in the Creighton game. As great as he is uh, shooting when he's open, creating off the wing, he's still not a point guard and there was some chatter from the crowd about him being the starting point guard next year because he scored the 12 points in this game how how are we making that correlation i'm really confused i you know it i don't know what it was i mean there were a lot of people killing quincy in my area for his game and i didn't think quincy played all that bad to be honest with you i mean he didn't have the best game but he didn't play bad but you know there were a few times when shavar showed he is not a point guard. One point late in the game, he, he got the ball, and he kind of just stood there wondering, what the heck do I do? He ended up passing it or shuffling it off back to Miles Powell, and Miles had to throw up a force three. He's just not going to create off the point. He does a great job when he's put into positions where, where he can succeed. He does a nice job of creating plays off the wings while he's at full blast, but he's not a point guard, and I, we need to understand that. Next year, if he's our starting point guard, we're in a lot of trouble. So, But let's end this on a positive. Shavar has developed his game this year in addition to his defense. We always used to joke and say we're playing four on five offensively. If they're going to double team and Shavar is left open, I now have the confidence that he can do what needs to be done offensively in those situations. I'm still a little concerned about when he's got that even one-on-one matchup, like you said, has to create individually or do something to create an offensive advantage. That's just not his game yet. But for this moment in time, what he was asked to do in this Nova game, he was outstanding. So he deserves his kudos. Absolutely. But, you know, going forward, we've seen this way too infrequently from him. We need a little more consistency where he'll shoot a one for three or he'll shoot a two for four as opposed to going an over or not even shooting. You get that open shot. You got to put it up. If it's a good shot, take it. If you miss it, we move on. But you can't sit there and bog down the offense because you all of a sudden you don't want to shoot. All right, well, let's talk about being active because I thought Miles Kale was getting involved again. He was really active on the defensive side. He was working hard on Bay as well. Uh, I thought that Kale was the best guy to match up on Bay. I would have liked to see that more. But Kale also got a couple threes to go down. He just really is an enigma. I, I think he could be so much more. 
We know that it could be so much more. And in a game like this, going forward in postseason play, I really wish we could see the old Miles Kale. I really do. Yeah, I mean, it was quite obvious from his defensive play right from the get-go that he was in this game. I don't, And again, we've talked, you know, till we're blue in the face, we don't know what happened. I mean, from the time the Pan Am games ended to right now, who knows what's happened. All we can hope for is that he gives us some good minutes the rest of the way, and somehow this summer he turns it back around and gives us the production that he gave us in the sophomore season. Do I even dare go back to the Italy exhibition games? He's one for 10 one night and he's five for five the next. I'll even take that. Give me one good game, one bad game. He's just been so sheltered in his, his approach. He's we, just, he's not, he's just not coming out of that shell. You know, we were supposed to be talking about good things that happened, but we've already started our sour <laughs> gripe, our sour grapes <laughs> and gripe section. So let's go on, Mike. What are you going to complain about this week? Okay, sour grapes and gripes is the Nova game. Missed opportunity, but to me, the person who really missed the opportunity to steal the show, stamp his his legacy, was Miles Powell. We have at times throughout the year said that it's Powell and Prey and that we live and die by his shooting. And is the rest of the team going to step up and give him the support for this team to go deep you know, into March and, and make a run? And they have. And Miles in this game was five for 18 from the floor. He was three of 10 from three. You know, I, I understand a couple of threes were just off, but there's becoming some trends for Miles. His drives are becoming out of control. He's taking some threes that are way too deep early in the shot clock, forcing it against double teams. I, I think that he was the one, unfortunately, who held them back from winning this game. And I, I know that's some harsh criticism because he's our guy and we wouldn't be here without him, but that was the opportunity to put an over the top effort and shine and everybody else played pretty good. Well, this has been a, you know, repeated story from all the home games, basically. I mean, there's something in the range of a nine point swing of what he scores at home versus what he scores on the road. I don't know what it is. You know, I mean, Donnie Marshall during the Creighton game tried to explain it away as, you know, this is almost the pro mentality where at home you got to deal with people asking for tickets and all this nonsense. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, is he trying too hard? Is he pressing? Once again, we've got the tendonitis excuse being floated out there. And hey, maybe it's true. Maybe he's... You know, his knees aren't feeling the greatest. He's dealt with injury problems this year. But it's true. He just hasn't been the same dynamic player. I just want him to be more efficient. Be in the moment. Understand what's working. He did dish out eight assists. So why not continue to facilitate since the D is geared to stop you? And listen to these numbers. I keep on saying that the rest of the team stepped up. 23 of 46 from the floor, 50% for the rest of the team. Nine of 19 from three, 47%. Tom, if he's already got eight assists and they are all over him, why is that number not like 14 assists? Miles is going to shoot. Miles is going to throw those shots up when he thinks he has it. And part of it is guys stand around a lot when Miles has the ball. My, my guys aren't running through their offensive sets if they even exist. 
You know, so at times he's got no one to go to when he's got the ball. All I know is this was another one of those national stage games. We're out here in San Diego, California, and there's a couple of college basketball fans that I, you know, I chat with that are San Diego State followers, and I'm getting the text after the game going, oh, that's a tough loss. So I know that the college basketball landscape of fans was watching on this particular night. And to me, this performance probably took Miles out of the national player of the year conversation. I know he's going to be on some of those lists, but I think this just kind of took him down a notch. How can you give the national player of the year that award when he's shooting 39% from the floor and 26% from three for the season? He's become a bit of a volume shooter. So we always joke when we criticize Shavar that we always give a disclaimer beforehand. This is not a criticism of Shavar. That's a, I'm going to say this. I'm going to put my disclaimer out there. I love myself some Miles Powell. I have loved him since I saw him play in that Iowa game. I thought he was going to be something special. Obviously, I didn't think he was going to be this special, but I thought he was going to be great. I don't know that he's Big E's player of the year anymore. I mean, if you take a look at everybody, Marcus Howard has had a better year production-wise, even though Marquette is on a huge skid right now. But I don't know if a guy like Tyshawn Alexander or even Kamar Baldwin don't come in from the back door and grab it. I mean, these are both two big-time ballers doing things on their team. Both of those teams weren't expected to do what they have done so far this year. I don't know that they don't come in through the side door and, and, and take the title. You could even make the argument that Sadiq Bey should be in this conversation. Here's the, sure, unfor- sure. here's the unfortunate reality for Miles is the bar was already set so high to start the season. He already had games like Howard has that jump off the page. You don't get the, name of, the nickname of Superman because you're ordinary. So there have been a lot of games this year where Miles has been ordinary. And that's okay. We're all human. He had a concussion. He had a rolled ankle. Everybody's throwing the kitchen sick at him. So you can't expect him to be Superman every night. But the fan base probably does. So every time that he just falls right below that mark, it's unfortunately a little tick against him. And it shouldn't be. that The team is still you know, tied for first, co-champions in the Big East. They're going to the NCAA tournament for the fifth straight time. He's probably still going to be first-team All-American, potentially. He's had a great year. But there's this bar that people were setting to just be unworldly good. And unfortunately, down the stretch, for whatever the reason is, he has been below that mark of, of being the best player in the country. And maybe it is still lingering effects of the concussion, because prior to that concussion, I mean, he was unworldly. I mean, you don't go... For 37 points to get Michigan State. You just don't do it. I mean, it doesn't happen. And they were throwing everything they could at him. But, you know, the reality is, is sometimes this is the kind of stuff that happens and you have to fight through it. And sometimes, you know, you just don't have those, whoa, did you see those moments? But we did have a, whoa, did you see that moment, in my opinion, in the first game against Nova. Michael, I'm going to steal your thunder. Normally, you're the one that comes up and describes these, but I've got one, and I saw it personally, and it brought the house down. With about 7.51 left in the second half, 
Sandro Mamu Kelishvili, your boy, drives to the basket, puts up a shot. The shot is good, and the foul! And he's on the ground, giving the angel double bicep move. It was great. And then he gets up, and most importantly, finishes off that traditional three-point play with a free throw, cutting the lead down to five. But the team could never capitalize on that momentum. Did, did you just fanboy Sandro? Just Absolutely. Just it was a great moment. And the crowd, <laughs> oh, we exploded. I, I, look, when, when that happened, as he was constantly using both hands in the game, I was really impressed. It showed that next level skill set. I was I was joking that he got posterized in the next game against Creighton, and you're like that doesn't count. Doesn't I count. Thought, Never I happened. Thought it did. I thought it did. Not I mean, that was that was. I think I thought it was Damian Jefferson. Man, that was a throwdown. Most overrated <laughs> concept in sports: the posterization concept. But let's move on. Minute. So so Miles Kale can have a hammer throwdown dunk, but when somebody else gets posterized, it's got that's nothing overrated? to do with the poster, man. It's the dunk itself. It's a great that Damian Jefferson dunk was great. It was a great dunk, but that whole posterization concept, ah, I like that it, someone went up to try to block him. When you throw down the hammer and you throw down the hammer in someone's face, I'm sorry, that just takes it up a notch. I get it. All right, speaking of taking it up a notch, when Seton Hall loses, Willard takes his post-game quotes up a notch, it just seems. I always have a lot of fun when we lose and we get to pick through uh, his post-game media sessions. So let's do it again for this game. He makes a comment about Miles and Q. He goes, I'm struggling with Quincy and Miles a little bit. I put a lot of Miles on them and I'm trying to get them emotionally charged back up. This has been a grind, and our schedule has not helped the fact that we played such a hard schedule in so many big games. My biggest goal right now is to get those two guys emotionally charged back up because it's been a very emotional season for both of them. Tommy, I, I got a lot of issues with this quote. You want to take a first stab at it? You're playing on senior night for the Big East title for the first time in nearly 30 years in front of the biggest crowd that The Rock has ever seen, and you're worried about getting them emotionally charged back up? Even if he meant this in the post-game sense. Let's take it for an example. Okay, they just lost on senior night, and now he's got to bring them back up? You're still playing for the Big East title on Saturday. If that doesn't get you up emotionally, nothing will. I'm lost. These guys potentially have less than 10 games to go in their college career. Some of them will not go on to play professional basketball. Yes, Powell should. I don't know about Q. I don't know where Rose is going to end up. Could they all have a professional basketball career? Sure. But being on the NCAA tournament stage, being a part of the Big East, that's over. I got to get fired up for that. I got fired up for our, like, senior season intramural championship game because I knew it was the last one that we were going to play. These guys got to get fired. <laughs> I mean, come on. These guys got to get fired up to be on the biggest stage in college basketball in the Big East? I, I don't like that answer. I mean, what if playing a Rutgers-type cupcake schedule at home earlier this year fired them up for this game because they were worn down from the non-conference? Is, is that what's holding them back? No, let's not I, talk about and let's not talk about anything red in this podcast, Mike. Better dead than red. Move on. 
No, okay. So so Gary and Dave are talking to him in the post game, and he continues to talk about Miles and Quincy. Miles and Quincy are on fumes now. You can just see it. It's more mental than anything. They have logged a lot of minutes. I need to find time to get Ant back into the game. As good as Shavar is playing, I need someone to be able to run an offense. And Anthony is much better at doing that. Hold me back. Now? Now you want to get Nelson some more minutes? You've given him a DNP for the last two. He was averaging 3.8 minutes per game in the last five before that. We've been saying it all season. You don't have a backup point guard to run the offense. And, and with one game to go, now you're going to come out and publicly say, oh, Shavar can't run the point? I got to get Anthony back, back involved? Oh, I'm getting angry. I'm getting angry. I'm not even going to dignify that comment with a response. I'm done banging that drum. We can talk about Nelson in the postseason recap. We can talk about what we think about the whole substitution patterns and how minutes played out then. I'm not going to get into it. It's I don't know even know why he brought up Nelson's name. We're moving on. Saturday, we had a second game. We had a second chance of winning the Big East title. And Creighton 77, Seton Hall 60. Seton Hall came out slowing the pace down and quieting the crowd in route to an early 17-12 lead. But Creighton answered with a 12-2 run of their own. It went back and forth from there with the game tied at 32 going into half. The game remained tied at 50-50 with 10 minutes to go before Creighton found its shooting stroke and closed on a 27-10 run. Okay, Tommy, you said the final score was 77-60, so not a lot of stats for Seton Hall to fill the box score this time. Miles Powell and Quincy McKnight with 15 apiece, Sandro with 12 rebounds, but it was basically all Creighton down the stretch. Marcus Zegarowski, 23 points, 5 of 5 from 3, 5 assists, 6 rebounds. Devin Mahoney, 16 points off the bench. And Tyshawn Alexander, 15 points, four assists, three steals, and more lockdown D on Miles Powell. For the team stats, Creighton shot a blistering 14 of 26 from three, 54.7% field goal shooting for the entire game. Seton Hall did have a plus 10 rebounding edge, but Creighton was fantastic with the basketball, only five turnovers on the day. Mike, I don't like how we came out to play. I don't care that we had a tie game going into half. I don't care that we had a tie game with 10 minutes left to go. We did not play our basketball game. We sat there and we worried about everything else in this world. We worried about the crowd. We worried about Creighton shooting. We worried about everything instead of going in there and imposing our will. We didn't play our game, Mike, and it's sad. So did Kevin Willard coach this game scared? He absolutely coached this game scared. Mike, the first game was a close game. A couple of good defensive possessions and we win that game. Why do we all of a sudden go into the four-corner slowdown offense? Well, we played the same exact style that we did against Maryland. And it worked against Maryland. And it seemed like it was working for the majority of the first half. It kept the crowd out of it. But my issue with this is 
you are once again playing an approach that is not who you are. That first game was 87 to 82. It came down to a couple possessions late. And now all of a sudden, you don't want to dictate play. Everyone was complaining that in the first matchup, you had Sandro in foul trouble. So if Sandro wasn't in foul trouble and we just hammer it inside, we were just going to pound them into submission. And you play like you played against Maryland. And here's my issue with that. Nothing wrong with the strategy against Maryland. No Sandro. No Powell. Top 10 team coming into your building. Not a lot of time to prepare. You do what you got to take to win the game in that moment. And that's what they did. They mucked it up and they won a game 52 to 48. Did you really think we were going to beat Creighton 52 to 48 in their building? You know, there's very few times where I'm at a loss for words, Mike. I don't like it. You need to play your style of basketball. You need to you, you need to be with the girl you brought to the dance, Mike. And we just went away from it. We It seemed like, I'll tell you what it seemed like. It seemed like we walked that ball up and then I don't have a problem with walking the ball up. And then it seems like we pounded that ball into submission. And then with 9, 10 seconds left on the shot clock, we try to come up with some offense. And trying to come up with some offense. We, we had, had bad, <laughs> we had bad shots. We had shot clock violations. It was just pitiful. I don't get it. Tommy, we don't have an offensive scheme typically throughout most of the season, right? We go through stretches where we're sharing the ball and it's working, i.e. the Marquette game. But one of the biggest issues we've documented is lack of offensive continuity with this team. So you think the strategy is to start the offense with 10 seconds to glow in the shot clock when we struggle with offensive continuity? I'm not saying it's a good strategy. I'm saying that's what it looked like we were doing. That's exactly what we were doing. And what the heck were we doing on defense? We came out in a zone against one of the best shooting teams in the entire country. We absolutely struggle finding guys in a zone. And that's exactly what ended up happening is they were getting open looks at the three-point line throughout the entire game. 14 for 26 does not mean that the zone worked. I know we got out of it. But my problem is once we got out of the zone, what did we do? We let Creighton dictate back to us. We let them go small, and therefore we went small. Advantage, McDermott. Why did we not post up Sandro? It was like the the second or third possession of the game. He backed down the small defender, got into the lane, took his time, little jump shot in in the key, and I was like, all day with that play we didn't do it again for the rest of the game did did you know that sandro scored seven points early on with about three and a half minutes uh, into the game and did not score the rest of the game would have fed sandro till his left hand was tired from shooting i mean it's this is the problem this is a small team and i get that you end up having to pull Roe because Roe can't chase those shooters out to the three-point line fine Put, put Sandro at the five and make them pay in the middle. They don't have anyone that can shut down Sandro in the middle. But it went away from it. I don't get it. Roe was much more effective this game. We sure. started to struggle at that 10-minute mark because that's when Roe got his fourth foul. And this is where I'm going to start getting concerned about the depth and other issues as we move on here. If playing big was still working, where is Ike? Where is Samuel? Why are we going small there? I got so many more coaching concerns and flaws. Let's just get him out of the way, right? You know, he decides to let Powell play lead guard later in the shot clock, like we were talking about, but he had no answer for the trap off the pick and roll. 
it was just exhausting to watch it fail over and over again. They don't really have a solution for this. The player that can handle the pick and roll and see over the defense and make the right pass is Nelson. He's 6'4". He's smooth with the basketball. He's not available right now. We have to move past the fact that we just don't have the guy right now that's not Q's strength. Powell's not really a lead guard that's going to facilitate, even though he's you know racking up some assists. Counter, uh, counter to that, he's building up higher turnover numbers. Four turnovers versus five assists in this Creighton game. Powell shot six of 13. He wasn't inefficient. This game wasn't on Powell, but you put Powell in a position where you could not maximize his skill set. He was not going to get the best looks because he was playing lead guard. They were attacking him 30 feet from the basket. It was late in the shot clock. Once he has to give that ball up, he's not getting it back. The whole thing was doomed to fail, if you ask me, from a strategic perspective. Well, right? we, got- well, I mean, this is Willer's M.O. I mean, year after year in recent memory, we're putting the ball in the hands of a non-traditional point guard. We love this combo guard thing that we just keep rolling out there and it's just not working. And we're talking about Nelson being the answer. Didn't he just say he was going to find more run for him after the Nova game? Did he just say that? I think it's lip service. I think, of course, it's lip service. He gave you the quote that you wanted to hear after that game. Everyone's like, oh, everyone looked tired because they looked tired after the Villanova game. So he gives you the answer of, oh, I'm going to build out the rotation some more again. We're going to, we're going to use it in the Big East tournament because it's three games in three nights. He's given you all the answers that the media wants to hear so they can kind of shut up and move on. But the reality is that's not what his strategy is. He's essentially shortened his bench down to a seven-man rotation since the Xavier loss. And here's my issue with that. You were picking on Jay Wright and Nova for that. They've been playing great basketball. Since he cut his rotation down to seven guys, after the Xavier loss, they have gone five and four. All right, last bullet point relative to offensive continuity. I'm more concerned because we don't have this depth at point guard, because we've shortened the bench, that when Powell or Q get into extended foul trouble and we identified that Shavar is not a true point guard, and Willard has admittedly stated in his last post-game quote that he's not your offensive facilitator, that we could possibly go through some major droughts in these big games coming up. Powell got an offensive foul with 10 minutes and 53 seconds to play in the first half, and he was out of the game for six-plus minutes. Let me ask you this. Creighton is not considered a great defensive team, right? No, 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 not if you give up 91 points to the Johnnies. And they gave up 82 to us last time, yet we scored only two points during that six-plus-minute stretch. Because once again, you moved Q off the ball and you let Shavar run some more traditional point guard and we did not have offensive flow, especially when the, the strategy was once again to take the shot clock under 10 seconds. Um, to me, Tommy, it's not about the players. I'm, I'm picking on Willard. It was all about X's and O's, strategic approach. And if they would have won this game 65-60, Willard was going to be, you know, the chiropractor's back. But I don't like a lot of these adjustments that he made. Well, and they didn't work, Mike. We didn't lose by two points or five points like we did at home against Creighton. We basically got, got our doors blown off in those last 10 minutes. But, Mike, you brought up the fact that the rotation is down to a seven-man rotation, basically. And I think the side effect of that, it has hurt 
our defense because we are not looking good at defense and this whole last week was not a good look if you're going to be on tired legs that's you're going to suffer on both ends of the floor it's not just offensively it is absolutely on the defensive end you want to have in those last five minutes as fresh a legs as possible that's where Shavar has added some value that's where the nine or ten guys going deep is important because Roe doesn't get those fourth that fourth foul with 10 minutes to play let's look at some of these numbers going down the stretch in this game in which Creighton just took over and ran away with it. Creighton scored 30 points over the final 10 minutes, three points of possession. That's, that's just off the charts. They scored on 12 of their last 13 possessions. Seton Hall is now 0-7 when allowing their opponents to shoot better than 46% from the field. Our defense was ranked sixth nationally on February 1st, and it will now be outside of the top 25 when the Big East tournament tournament starts. There is a trend here, Tommy, and it's not looking good because our calling card was our defense. We were going to grind you into that low 60s, and then Powell was going to take over, or we were going to do just enough offensively to win the game. Now what? Mike, what <laughs> what now? What now is going to be the same thing that we've seen over and over and over? for the past five years and people are going to say we're going to make our fifth ncaa tournament but it's the same things that we're not learning from we shrink that rotation we don't get guys involved and we wear down our starters and this is what happens but mike let's move on to your favorite part let's dissect more of kevin's post-game comments i'm gonna read them you're gonna give me your opinion I love it. We got two losses. We got two quote book sections. All right. So, first of all, Kevin took umbrage with the speed that Creighton started to celebrate their one-third of the Big East Conference title. I wish I could bring my kids out here right now. They're cutting down the nets, and they're in the locker room thinking that they failed miserably. What did you want them to do, Tom? Did you want them to have them cut down the nets opposite Creighton? Here's the funny part. I read somewhere that they roped off the opposite basket and left it available for us to do so. <laughs> it just wasn't going to happen. Did you want them to kind of come out to midcourt together, put both hands on the trophy with one of the guys from, from Creighton and simultaneously raise the trophy in unison for their fans? It's not going to happen. To the victor go the spoils. It's on their home court. It was their comeback in the standings. It was their overachievement. We talked about in the opening. This sounds like sour grapes from Kevin. It just does. I don't mind the sour grapes for this, Mike. You know, because they're acting like they're not sharing the title with anybody. It's like these Omaha kids don't understand the rules of engagement before they started the game. It's like people complaining about the electoral college after the election. You complain about it before, not after. But I digress. Let's move on a little bit here. Next, Kevin Willard quote. I want my guys to understand we're going to do the same thing. When we get back tonight, I'm going to pay some students to storm Walsh gym, and I'm going to hang up a banner. I don't care if I've got a scotch tape it up there. I give up. I'm just going to let Kevin take over the entire sour grapes and grapes section of the podcast. Now, this I, one, this one's a bit much. I agree. I just wait. When does it stop? My, my answer, you, you said to me off the record, what do you want him to say? I want him to come into the post game and say hats off to Creighton. 
They beat us again for a second time. They are playing great basketball right now. Them, Nova, us, we're all going to be a great representation of the Big East going forward in the NCAA tournament. Is there stuff that we need to work on and learn from these two losses? Absolutely. And we're going to get back to the gym and we're going to practice and we're going to be ready come Big East tournament time and specifically the NCAA tournament to make sure that we correct those flaws and have a great run going forward. That's the answer. Can I, can I be Kevin Willard's personal PR guy? Can I? Because these answers are ridiculous. Let, let me ask you something outside of the quotes. You don't find the Creighton celebration in the least over the top. It's wrong. Uh, if, if you don't win it outright, I don't think you celebrate to the extent that they did. But if uh, to, to each their own. I, I think it's a little bit of bad karma. I don't think you celebrate when you haven't won the big prize yet. So they, they didn't win it outright. You know, they haven't won the Big East title. They haven't had any success beyond later this year. It, it kind of happens in hockey. When you win the conference title, uh, they give out the, the, the conference trophy, whatever they want to call it, and there's a, a superstition that the players, you know, huddle around it and they take a team picture but no one's allowed to touch it because it jinxes you from winning the Stanley Cup. It's just kind of one of the unique things in hockey. I kind of believe that until you win the big prize, you don't over-celebrate, you know, an accomplishment in the middle of the season. San Diego State did that earlier this year in one of their regular season games. They raised the conference championship banner because they already had it locked up. And what happened? They lost that night. <laughs> their first loss of the season. It's just bad karma and bad juju around doing things like that. But to each their own all right let's do one last quote and finish this up here they showed me everything they needed to show me after that heartbreaking loss on wednesday they could have come out and laid an egg and then they came out and battled for 35 minutes you're egging me on here you're just egging me on tommy the, the the 30 to 10 run started with 10 minutes to play did it did it not I got nothing. I can't get, can't defend it here. Sometimes Willard runs his mouth. Tommy, how many minutes are played in the basketball game? Maybe this is why Willard won't go on the fan and give an interview. I don't know. The game is played for 40 minutes. We were awesome for 35. You know what? DePaul's been awesome for 35 the entire Big East season. How are they doing? How are they doing? You know, uh, so, you know sometimes when Willard speaks... I look at it and say, did he really say that? <laughs> and speaking oh. of that, did they really say that, Mike? Again, I'm going to steal your thunder. I know how much you love these segments, but I'm going to steal your thunder. And I don't have a particular announcer or in-studio analyst that I'm going to go after right now. I'm <laughs> going to go after all the Fox announcers and their lack of understanding of the Big East's own rules by them calling this a winner-take-all game, Mike. It wasn't a winner-take-all game. It was a Seton Hall wins, they're outright champs. Creighton wins, they get to share the title with two other teams. This isn't my rule. This isn't your rule, Mike. This is the Biggie's conference rules. And no matter what your opinion is, that means squat. Your opinion here means squat. The so, fact is, this is the Biggie's conference rules. So in the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about the emotions of how you feel about this. So we can agree to disagree. When it comes to this, your job as an announcer 
is to dictate what the rules say, what the outcome truly could be based on said result. So in this particular context, I agree with you. The announcers got it completely wrong. You have no pushback from me relative to them not stating how the Big East lines up, what uh, delineates a Big East champion relative to that particular game. So you're right. From that perspective, you are right. Get all over the Fox announcers. Have a field day. But you cannot tell me how I'm allowed to feel emotionally after these two I games. I feel emotionally drained too, Mike, but that's not the point. And now I am Move glad. I'm not glad. The all these Creighton fans that jumped on the court and celebrated, they hung the banner, they unfurled it, they cut the nets. Now you got to take your soft act on the road and go to Madison Square Garden and see if you can win it. <laughs> and speaking of, of going on the road, so the road to 2494 continues. Oh, Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. Powell only averaged 14 and a half points over the two games this week, still leaving him 21 points shy of tying Nick the Quick Workman for a second all-time on Seton Hall's scoring list with 22.73. There's still potentially a max of nine games remaining. The average now needs to jump up to 26.9 points per game, and I've now jumped off the bridge again and telling you that it's probably not going to happen. I was all euphoric <laughs> after the Marquette game. Uh, we were cutting down the nets again. Now I'm concerned, do we get out of the, the rematch with Marquette on Thursday night and not even get to play three games at the Big East tournament? So uh, it is what it is. We just released the, the podcast for Nick. I encourage everyone to go listen to it. Understand the historical context of what Nick Workman was able to accomplish we highlight it. We talked to him about it. I think it was a really fun piece. And to be where Nick is on this list and how he accomplished it in only three years of playing basketball, I just think it kind of gets overlooked and it doesn't get its due. And that's kind of what we've been trying to accomplish with these segments is to not only recognize Miles, but really highlight some of the Seton Hall greats. So if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend that you go back and find the Nick Workman podcast. And not only did Nick Workman only do it in three years, Mike, you got to realize he averaged something like 25, 26 games a year. There were no long tournaments. There were no, it was a very shortened season. If, if you put him in a, uh, in a schedule where he, where he played 32 games, this is a whole nother conversation. We're not, no one's reaching him at that point. No, and he also didn't have the three-point line. I mean, I said it in the in the piece when we're talking to Nick. There should be an asterisk uh, in the record book for all these guys that played when the freshmen were not allowed to play varsity and just highlight that those records were accomplished on a three-year window, per se. Now, I understand not everybody gets to play four years for various reasons, transfers, injuries, but here's a guy like Nick who absolutely would be at the top of the charts if he was allowed to play a full four seasons. I mean, there are some great legends of college basketball that are at the top of the charts in only playing three years. You know, Pistol Pete Maravich scored over 3,000 points in just three seasons of college basketball. What if a guy like him got to play a fourth season? That generation just doesn't get its due, and our representation of that generation is Nick Workman. And I, like I said, I hope everyone goes and, and listens to that piece. Before we get into our final notes and takes, 
I just want to mention we will have a special Left Coast Pirates live episode coming out. John Fanta of the Big East Network is going to be joining us, and we're going to have some fun talking about all things Big East, previewing the Big East tournament, and much, much more. All right, Tommy, you want to give me your final takeaway for this week's episode? I cede the floor to you, Michael. Well, I'm going to cede the floor and quote somebody else. How about that? I am going to agree with a quote from Tyler Calvaruso that he put out on Twitter yesterday. He said, it's nice that Seton Hall has a share of the Big East regular season title, but let's face it, the way the season ended was downright disappointing. Winning outright was the goal, not sharing and settling for a number three seed. He kind of hit it right on the mark. This is kind of how I feel after the dust settles after some of the anger gets out, after we kind of, you know, wash away some of the X's and O's breakdown, the emotion that's kind of still sits with me as we head into the Big East tournament mirrors this tweet. So if, if you feel differently, Tommy, I'll throw it back to you. But otherwise, I'm putting a bow on the podcast. Well, the fun part is, no, I don't disagree. I'm hugely disappointed. It was a shock that we couldn't win one of the last two games. I thought we were going to actually go 2-0, like I said last week. I, You know, I mean, yes, Creighton beat us at the house. But again, it should have been a couple minor adjustments, not changing the way of play that you go out there and face a team with. I mean, it's not like they blew our doors off at the Rock. But I'm not going to sit there and change simple facts. The fact is, is that three teams are champion. The way you feel about it is a whole different story. The way they rank teams up for the seedings for the Big East tournament, they have to do something. Personally, they should not have co-champions. They should have one champion based on those tiebreakers when something like this happens to avoid all this nonsense. But they you don't. Know, you know what the silver lining is out of all of this? There is still more basketball to be played. That's right. So so the Big East tournament lies ahead, and I know how you love the Big East tournament, Tommy. I think it's all about seeding. I think it's all about NCAA projections. You're all about what a moment to be at the Garden, playing the, in the best conference under the bright lights and the opportunity to, to win a championship and cut down the nets. So represent in that 930 game like you always do. <laughs> I'm going to quote the great philosopher Al Davis. Just win, baby, and go Pirates. Go Big Blue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 